Hello again, and welcome to another exciting installment of Hot Town Summer, Summer Sequel in the City. Ooh, adding a little <laughs> spice to that title. Um, that's right. Uh, I am Kevin. I'm Sarah. And we are in Summer Sequel City um, today. So we're going to be talking about uh, the the three big sequels of the summer of 1989. And um, pretty mixed bag as far as quality goes, to be <laughs> and honest. And theme and genre and talent and on it goes. It's true. Yeah. it's <laughs> The one thing that was consistent was no women. One woman. <laughs> one woman in each film. One blonde woman in each film. Hey, you back off. Sigourney Weaver was a <laughs> okay, brunette. Okay, and fair, fair, fair. There's, there's variety there. I forgot it was Corny. You always forget about Sigourney. Um, yeah, it's interesting. This summer uh, has three sequels in the top ten. But it also actually has just a ton of just dud <laughs> movies out of the top ten. Like Star Trek V comes out, Oof. which is the one where they search for God, and yeah. it's not great. Um, <laughs> Nightmare on Elm Street Five and Friday the Thirteenth Part Eight huh. came out in the summer. A um, lot of it's a lot of movie, and it's also <laughs> weird that they put a horror movie out in the middle of the summer. But um, there we are. So. I we thought it would be neat to use this little one to dig into a little bit of just the um, the the business and the idea and the philosophy of sequel. Um, this is by no means the beginning of Hollywood being like, if you make a number two, you make more money. <laughs> yes. um, but it again, it just feels sometimes like you look at this summer and you're like, it's a lot of the things before just supercharged, yes. and then it's people. Studios years and years later saying, can we just redo that can summer? Can we do that again? Again. Can we do that again? money again? again? Get that money again? Um, but Sarah, I thought you got, you found some really great quotes from this book called Blockbuster yes. by Tom Schoen that uh, we both read that I think would just be worth diving into. Um, so, sure. Yeah. First one that uh, jumped out at me was, when you make a movie that's successful, it becomes a piece of real estate. So this is Zemeckis saying this. Um, it becomes a franchise and the reality becomes we're making a sequel and you guys can either help us or not, but a sequel is going to be made. So obviously there's a lot of arrogance, a lot of control there. The creative control and integrity is basically lost when the corporate machine gets involved. Um, Tim Burton felt that way about Batman, which we talked about a little bit, mm -hmm. but, um, yeah, another great quote, sequels reveal Hollywood's money grubbing instincts at its purest. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, Robert Zemeckis, who did, like, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which is this amazing original film, but he makes the Back to the Futures, um, and what's neat about those even is the sequel to that is almost them kind of doing a meta-commentary on sequels, yes. where they go back to the first movie, <laughs> and they're almost like, uh, and, and this is nowhere near an original idea, it's, he said it, the writers have said it, but also the, there's other podcasts that have covered this, but... They literally are almost going back to the film being like, let's not ruin the first movie. <laughs> yeah. And that's almost the, the plot of the second half of that film yes. is let's reinstate it. But it is interesting just this idea of like this, un like this irresistible attraction to make, you know, another one because it worked well. To relive it. Yeah. For I, good or bad. I love the idea where it says that idea of it becomes a re it becomes real estate is uh, is a great quote. Um Shows kind of the corporate machine, too. Yeah. yeah. Also shows, there's some interesting quotes, too, in that book about the passage of time. And we've talked a little bit about that kind of memory and nostalgia involved with films, especially maybe in this era. 
Um, so sequels allow for the ultimate nostalgia. Sometimes the most powerful nostalgia is short-term, mm. either for your childhood when you're in your teenage years, um, for your teenage years when you're in your 20s, for your 20s when you're in your 30s and 40s, maybe because it's easier to remember more recent, mm. um, I don't know, more recent eras, or they're, they're more vivid, they're still kind of present. But we have this crazy list of sequels. So I was just looking at some of the... We, you mentioned Back to the Future. We've got three of those, obviously. We talk about our favorite Christmas movie, Die Hard. We're up to five of those. Ghostbusters is now at four. Um, Rocky, number nine. I think it's going to be ten soon. You Star count Trek. Creed, yeah. Yeah, Star Trek, 13. So just on and on and on. Yeah. It, it's interesting, like... Um, you know, and I want to get into kind of the, like, the sort of three ways kind of classically that sequels get going. But I'm curious where we dive in because it's this hard question, but we didn't even talk about this before we went in. But do you think there are great sequels that exist commercially and artistically where you watch that and you're like, yeah, great movie, great movie. Ugh. Like, what are the great sequels? <laughs> what are the great sequels? I'm trying to think. Um, I mean, The Godfather, mm-hmm. Dark Knight. Yeah. Um, I'd say Toy Story 3 is pretty excellent. I'd say it's more probably, than two. Hey, I liked it more than two. Okay. Um, yeah, I think those come. I mean, The Godfather seems like an obvious one. Terminator 2. Yeah. T2. I feel like when they get there, they get there bearings almost mm-hmm. like when a film series knows what it wants to be or maybe the first round is kind of like a tryout proof of concept yeah. almost yeah and then it develops after that um yeah it's interesting like i i would say i mean godfather 2 uh i i have a i've always loved that one more than the yes. first one yes um uh dark knight i, I don't think the Harry Potter movies improve as they go on, in my opinion. I yeah. prefer The Two Towers over The Fellowship of the Ring. I prefer it over Return of the King, even, actually, to yeah, be Return honest. Yeah, Return of the King I love, but there's too many fake endings. <laughs> just goes on and on. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's interesting. Like, it, it's a handful, if yeah. you actually think yeah. about it. And there's not that there's un, aren't other sequels I like, but yeah. it's hard to find one where I'm like, this is a truly great film. And yeah. Not that it ignores the first one, but you're like, no, this is probably surpasses or it's it's own. It has a lot of value. Yeah. And I, or more value. But I mean, we were saying this just before we filmed, like there's almost not a single film that comes out now that you're not expecting a sequel to. <laughs> like it's almost you watch a film and it's rare where you're Unless like Unless it's art house or yeah. dramatic or um like based on a novel. Any kind of action movie, any kind <laughs> yeah. of, you know, like it's it's interesting that you leave and it's almost more like, oh, they're not going to make a and sequel to that. And I think that probably especially relates to kids movies as well or animated mm-hmm. features. Yeah. 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 Especially maybe because that's the idea of like kids getting attached to things and so it becomes like an easy, obvious seller, right? Like yeah. the same with Batman was so marketable for children. Yeah. Well, and you, you know, you talked about Toy Story. I mean, Toy Story was around long enough that it gets to the point where people who watched it as kids now have kids. I watched it with my dad in theaters, Toy Story 3, and we'd watched the original, like, however many years before it came out, 15, I Mm -hmm. don't know, maybe 20 years. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. I, we cried a lot. Yeah, I think it's 15 years. At the end of Toy Story 3. Yeah. Like, a lot. Totally. Um, 
And again, that's earned in that it's a good movie, but it also, I think as you were saying, it also is earned because it's like, we've just been here this long. Right. Like we have, we've been with you for 15 years. Yeah. So you have watched this and whatever it, and now like it's like stages. you've grown up as this character's grown up. Yes. And yeah. Um, it's interesting, like thinking about this and trying to figure out how do you dive into sequels? And again, this is not the end all be all conversation, but there for me, I thought of this, I'm like, there's really sort of three approaches that seem pretty common uh, in making a sequel often. Like one of them is the idea of let's do a reinvention. Mm -hmm. So let's do uh, a genre veer or let's get like a a new director. Let's take a a new writer sometimes. Yeah, new new writer. writer. Let's have a completely new spin uh, on this movie that you've seen. So it used to be, you know, brooding and serious. Now it's really fun and lighthearted. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sometimes that's because people are like, Hey, if we can get this R rating down to PG 13, we can make more money, <laughs> but it's also yeah. trying to figure out like, okay, what do we do with this film? It was alien is a great example. It's this amazing science fiction movie. And aliens is like, let's go hard action. Yeah. Like let's go big bombastic, the first one, there was one alien. The second one, let's just say it's a di- different idea. It's a reinvention. There's the idea of the value add. in uh, this one uh, film reviewer named Scott Mendelson talks about this a lot, where it's like, we're going to add a big name to the cast. So we're going to take the characters you know, and then we're going to add some extra. Mm-hmm. This is the classic superhero sequel idea. Like, I think Marvel basically made their entire sequel formula off this. was like, okay, we're going to do Thor... We're gonna but add. Also, in, we're gonna add the Hulk, yeah. right? Or like, Batman is a great one because by the time you get to the fourth, they're like, we already added Robin. What if we added Batgirl? Yes. Um, it's this idea of we're just gonna add things to it. So how do we make you think? Oh, okay, I'll come back. It's an it's it's this plus there's something. A twist. There's a twist. Um, and then there's the third one, which just sometimes feels like let's just do bigger and better. So let's take whatever people loved about the first one and just crank it up. Mm -hmm. Uh, The one that jumps to mind for me classically is I think how Return of the Jedi, it basically is like, let's do a Death Star, but -hmm. let's make it bigger. And let's not just have one big battle at the end. Let's have like three things going on, right? We have a space battle. We have a, you know, land battle. We have a lightsaber. It's all going on at the same time. Mm -hmm. And that's that idea of bigger and better. Um, and so as I thought about it, and it's one of those questions of am I shoehorning an idea to fit my my <laughs> thesis or is my thesis, you know, justified by my both. films? And it's a, it's, a, it's a classic both there. But as I look at these three big movies, uh, Ghostbusters 2, uh, Lethal Weapon 2, and Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, there's definitely elements of, of these three sequel pieces in all of them. Yes. Um, so yeah, Sarah, before we dive into these movies themselves, anything just on sequels? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm always skeptical, I guess, of sequels, and it seems too easy to me, like too obvious, and I don't know, I guess give sequels a chance, but also have realistic expectations, <laughs> <laughs> and ultimately, like, most of them haven't strayed too far away from the original. So if you enjoy the original, it's likely you're going to have more of the same on, you know, most, mostly. Yeah. Um, so I guess just try to keep that in mind and don't expect, you know, major, major differences. It, it is the moment where I feel, again, that's what interests me about diving into this whole podcast to begin with, where it is the idea of like, okay, the commerce has overpowered the art. Right? Like, yes. there are definitely moments where I think you have probably a lot of auteurs or directors saying, 
like I really want to make this. I feel like I want to revisit these characters. But, you know, even like Godfather 2, like a part of that was that Francis Ford Coppola kept creating film studios that would lose like piles and piles of money, right? Like, yes. um, you know, Dark Knight. Well, he can afford it. Yeah. Dark Knight, I mean, obviously is is brilliant. And I think he had a lot to say there. But he also really wanted to get the power to say, you know, to do the one for me, one for you mm-hmm. relationship. So yeah. Christopher Nolan makes it. Like, they're, you know, unless it's like a book trilogy, it feels like sequels are motivated by money more so than often. It's like, I just have to say this thing. Yes. Um, or for artistic value. Yeah. Or, I mean, for some reason, James Cameron, I think, is the king of like, but technology can now do this. So I want right. to do it. But he's also just obsessive. He is, he is obsessive, so. I don't know if that's artful as much as like, I'm going to prove them wrong and I'm going to show them that I can do this thing with this machine now. Big, I mean, he's like a, he's a. That's my James Cameron voice. That's your James Cameron voice. <laughs> <laughs> he feels like a bit more of a competent George Lucas is that yeah, way, right? Sure. Um, so, well, let's dive in uh, and we're going to, we're going to start it low um and we're gonna hopefully start low go a bit higher just a bit higher just a bit higher um <laughs> we're high. gonna start uh with what was number five uh on the top 10 of 1989 and just that is surprising to me ghostbusters 2 <laughs> so uh i did not subject sarah to watching this Thank one God. um because it wasn't readily available on streaming um and, and she didn't want to watch it there we go. There's only so much I can get a friend to agree to. I just to. feel like Ghostbusters 1 finishes so completely that it just is necessary to have a sequel. And I will say this. I, I, I'm going to start with the thing that I... Uh, there's some things I loved about this movie. Uh, I did... Uh, I do love uh, Sigourney Weaver in this film. She's great. Why is she in this movie? <laughs> there's that. Uh I I feel like I absolutely love the Bobby Brown banger in yeah, this film fair. on our own. It's uh, some great music. It does. If you watch the music video, it's also just the most epically we do 1989. A bunch to all of the music videos, like We've, the Prince one and the yeah. I'm definitely gonna Harry figure Connick out. Jr. I'm gonna yeah. figure out the website of the world, and I want to make a link of just the trailers and other things. But there's those elements of it. But um, you know, like I. I just, I just feel like this is a poorly executed film. Um, I mean, behind the scenes, they took five years to make it. For some dumb reason, the studio didn't want to make a sequel initially, even though you're again, you're like this movie, like the first Ghostbusters made just an insane amount of money. It made $667 million in today's money, which is insane to think about it. Anything making that much. Um, and, you know, they they delayed. A couple of the actors wanted to make it. A couple of them didn't. Uh, Bill Murray was the big holdout. Scorny <laughs> Weaver was the big holdout. Um, and I'll also say, like, you just watch this film and it just also shows. Like, it has this feeling of, like, Bill Murray is bored out of Not his mind. Not happy to be there. Um, and it's just tired. Like, I... I was saying to Sarah, uh, it feels like there's these good, you can see, find them on YouTube, uh, these behind the scenes extras for Phantom Menace, where George Lucas is talking his producers and uh, editors through all the stuff he's creating. And he is showing, you know, he's like, we're going to have this cool scene with, you know, Anakin in this little spaceship. And it, it's, it's my terrible George Lucas. And he's describing scenes that we now know are awful. Or he's describing Jar Jar Binks about how much kids are going to love him and how great it's going to be. 
And I don't know if they're too scared to tell George Lucas it's bad. <laughs> they're not convinced. Or if they honestly just thought this guy's a genius, of course it'll be great. Or but, he's paying for it. So let him do it. Yeah, I don't know what it is. But I said to Sarah, watching this movie, it just felt like people being like, it just felt routine. It right. just felt like, well, we're just going to go through this. We'll come out. We'll do this. And it'll work. You know, it's like a championship team that clearly forgot, like, oh, yeah, we still actually have to play the game. Um, <laughs> because it just feels like it hits all the classic notes and it doesn't really add anything. And there are people out there who will defend. Max von Sato, uh does the voice of the villain Vigo. Um, you know, Peter McNichol from Ally McBeal fame oh. plays this really insanely over-the-top villain. But it also just, it, it feels boring. Right. Um, and I, I don't know, like I just, it, it opens big, but, uh, it, it definitely like fizzles out fast and it is not fondly remembered, but I will say, cause again, it's hard to top the original theme song from Ghostbusters, but Bobby Brown's on her own oh. worth, a, worth a look, Bobby. worth a look, worth a listen. Um, I don't know. Yeah. There's, there's not much more in this film. Uh, for me to really say. So I will just give it this. Uh, it opens uh, June 16th. Uh, it makes $29 million, Great Great, we- I mean, great timing for the summer blockbuster. It is, yeah. And it is like this summer has three films. I said this before. has three films that start, create a new uh, opening movie right. record. Uh, and Ghostbusters 2 is one of them. Uh, another one of them is Indiana Jones uh, and, the, and The Last Crusade. So this one opens, makes slightly more than Last Crusade, um, but it only ends up making about $112 million, which if you think about it, that's like almost a little less than a third of it is made on opening weekend, which is not, it's not great. Not great. Um, that's $265 million adjusted, which is still not brutal, but I mean, it, it, it's not incredible. This feels very much like the film of bigger, better. Let's just take what we did before and make it bigger. We'll make it better. Exotic locations, adventure. Yeah. Lots of hijinks. Yeah. Yeah. Feels lighter than the previous movie, I'd say. Yeah. I mean, they definitely tried to figure out like, oh, kids love the cartoon. So we need to now make the film lighter. <laughs> yes. Um, and, you know, it's funny, like back to even our Batman movie, like kids, kids like some kind of subversive stuff. Oh, yeah. Like if you rewatch the first Ghostbusters, it's definitely like raunchier than things. you thought it was. There's, there's things there that take you there's a jack guard. There's a ghost that performs things yeah. on Dan Aykroyd in that film. Um, yeah. That's real. It's in there. Uh, and so it's interesting that they just thought we got to go veer hard to the PG, uh, but make this film bigger, better. Like we have new weapons and new this. There's some gross stuff too. That's true. That's true. People's faces melting off. <laughs> Nazis. <laughs> the usual. The huge. Moving on to better things. Sure. Indiana? Uh, yeah, let's do Indiana Jones. So with Indy, we have this um, amazing opening scene camels in the desert you're like oh it's an adventure story it's western with a twist um they really do see the sights a lot of exotic locations a lot of almost like bond like action sequences which is pretty fun actually. which is i mean steven spielberg always kind of wanted to make a james bond and i yes. think he uh in a movie like this you can definitely see the like oh you're 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 taking the elements of bond yes that work for you here especially because of who he casts in this film too absolutely We've got a lot of the working through family stuff and nostalgia. Um, we can talk about these franchises um, 
Uh, there's a great quote from this book as well that says, furthering the franchise by first furthering the bloodline. Is this from the book Blockbuster? Correct, yeah. yeah. So we have Indiana Jones finding his father um, with, you know, Mad Max. He adopts a son. Terminator is a stand-in father. John McClane's trying to protect his daughter and her mother. Even if we look at... Uh, Back to the future, we've got Marty McFly trying to save his parents' young relationship to ensure that he's going to be born in the future. So a little self-serving, but, you know, it's, it's kind of a fun part of it. So Indy's father's gone missing on the trail um, of the Holy Grail, and so um, Indy is sent to follow him and pick up the trail. Hmm. So they're also, you know, referencing Indy's mom when they're unpacking some family drama and childhood wounds. Um, yeah, so ultimately it's about, like... Spoiler alert, um, Indiana has to choose between his father's hand and the grail, and he chooses his father. So the lesson is friendship or family, which is kind of lame. But, but cheesy, but, you know, heartwarming. But it ending. wins you. Yeah. In a classic Spielberg. Exactly. Um, let me ask you this. Like, what were some, what were some things that you just, because you, when we did the preview episode, you seemed sort of lukewarm. On this movie. I had forgotten a lot of it. I'm glad I rewatched it because it, it is fun. Like I, I think especially just like from the beginning opening scene, it's like, okay, you're in for like a wild ride. And um, the, the opening is the stuff with River Phoenix yes. where he plays like a young Indiana he Jones. He is and he looks like Indiana Jones. It's very, and there's a chase on a train? circus train. It's very fun. Um, so yeah, it's like. It also has this like feeling of a Disney movie. John Williams does the soundtrack, and I don't know if they're trying to make it more family friendly by doing that. But anyway, the opening scene is is with children, and they're like Boy Scouts in the desert. So um, George Lucas and Spielberg love telling stories from children's perspectives. So it kind of shows this other. It is also very. I mean, Spielberg growing up in Arizona with a big desert backdrop. Yes, definitely has that. I mean, this is Utah uh, technically, but it's got that feel. I, I will say, just because I don't want to skip too fast past the India as a kid thing, I like loved it. Like I love when he gets the whip. Yes. And they give him even that they give him the, the cut star, on the on the the scar on his chin because Harrison Ford has one continuity. But there was a small part of me. Even they give him the fedora. Yeah. There's a small part. It's like, oh man, this is why you get fast forward to 2018 and you get a terrible movie like this Han Solo film, where it's like. We got to explain everything. Yes. We got to explain where everything he got his gun. To, we yes. got to explain where he gets his name. And you're like... And then you feel like an idiot as a viewer. Like, they need to explain everything to me because I can't put pieces together. But it's just weird when it's done well, it's great. Totally. And when it's not, well, you're you like, this is painful. Well, you could overdo it, right? You could yeah. a couple little things, but it's not too much. Um, do you want to talk about the course correct from Temple of Doom? Totally. I mean, uh, both Spielberg and George Lucas, uh, are, uh, not shy of admitting that they were in very dark places in their own lives, uh, making Temple of Doom. I think Lucas was going through a divorce. Um, Spielberg, not in a great place. Uh, so they, they both felt like Temple of Doom is just dark. It's very occult. I mean, people's hearts get ripped out in that movie. Uh, it and Goonies coming out in the same year is one of the reasons why the PG-13 rating got invented. Yeah. Um, because my parents took my brother's birthday party Did to that they? film. And my dad... Which birthday was it? Uh, Graham. Graham would have been... Not 13 yet? Not thir- 12? Oh. Yeah. Or no, like 10. Oof. 
Yeah. And did Barbara Nell get in trouble? They, uh, I was not allowed to see Temple of oh. Doom until I was like 16 years old. Okay. Uh, so that was the, that was the impact it left on my family. But they, uh, you know, Spielberg always has said once he's like, uh, I can't hate that film too much because it's where I found my wife. Uh, right. I met my wife. But they both felt this need of we want to end better. Sure. We want to end on a more positive, more warm Light-hearted. note. Lighthearted. Yeah. And so this movie definitely has a bit of that idea of re- not reinvention because I feel like it's trying to get back to some of the roots of Raiders of the Lost Ark. But it definitely has that piece of like the value add. Of yes. like, let's let's hit your nostalgia bone by adding the James Bond of most of these people, especially of 89, who the parents, you know, James Bond would be, which is Sean Connery. And for Spielberg himself, it feels like it just un- uh, unlocks this whole different aspect of him again. Like okay. he goes back into these very cool action scenes of, you know, Venice boat chases yes. and all this fun stuff. He's also, what, 12 years older than Indiana Jones? Yeah. Sean Connery, so yeah. that's an interesting one. It is a very interesting... Uh, They're into the same types of women. <laughs> that's a w- Schneider. That is a way to phrase oh, it. Boy. Yeah. <laughs> so we have another one-woman film here. So Dr. Schneider, the uh, Nazi. Um, so she's she's just on her own. Who she's is... no other woman to talk to. Shockingly, shockingly young compared to both these <laughs> actors, though. Like, it, it it's something. So um, she's had... <laughs> relations romantic relations with both indy and his father um there's also some just like weird things like she says how dare you kiss me and then goes in for the most aggressive kiss ever and yeah so it's just a lot um yeah but i mean can i ask the standout scene for that film for you like what's your favorite i thought the scene in the catacombs was great in venice or the castle when they're with the rats and then they're in the coffin, the overturned coffin. I don't know. It's just something about it. It's very spooky and intense. I mean, the final scene where they're on, you know, he has to walk over the edge of the abyss and the, do an, an actual walk of faith. Um, yeah, there's some really exciting good stuff. But I think, yeah, the opening scene with the circus animals on the train is pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. The castle's fun. Totally. Um, I mean, this is an interesting trilogy series because Temple of Doom has that great, like, um, minecar chase and the, the, like, cool thing in the nightclub at the beginning. And um, those scenes were ideas for Raiders of the Lost Ark. The castle scene was kind of an idea for Raiders of the Lost Ark and Last Crusade, as I understand it. So... Sometimes I'm like, they came up with one incredible movie mm-hmm. that had enough spillover mm-hmm. to create two other films that were like decent. Yeah. Which is like. Those elements feel like Bond too, like in the castle when they're spinning yeah. around the fireplace and all that. Like it's just kind of goofy enough, but exciting enough to be believable and fun and keeps, yeah. keeps you wondering, keeps you yeah. guessing. Yeah. There's some great villain stuff. I mean, again, back to the Nazis. <laughs> They have some great lines. Nazis, I hate these guys. It is awesome. Like he, I feel like Harrison Ford, It it's like where you, I mean, he as he's like, this is Han Solo too, but like, he's so funny. He's very funny. Because he has also, this ability of just being like, I, I'm making fun of this in some weird way, yeah. but I'm also fully in it. Yes. Which feels awkward, too, because some of the stuff, like, especially when they go to Berlin and there's the book burning, like, you see so many swastikas, and it's actually quite chilling. And I was wondering if that would have been done in 2022. Hmm. And I kind of doubt it. Like, Indy meets Hitler and gets an autograph, and that's supposed to be, like, a funny joke. 
Like, it does feel a bit on the edge. But I mean, you know, like, they're not, there's no sympathy in them as villains. There isn't, but they also don't, like, really get into it, right? Like, it's still no. a goofy action movie. So it feels but just I also, like there's a tension there. But I think this is also where we live now. Because back then, it's just, well, yeah, they're Nazis. They're horrible. Like, there's no, you almost but don't, then need, it's you don't need to explain it. It's but it's shorthand. of it. And the fact that, like, Indy meets Hitler and just, like, get, has this, like, goofy interaction. Like, it just feels awkward. It does. <laughs> I, I, I think you're right. But I also think that you can't help but be uh, affected by the last six years of, of the world, right? Totally. Where we have a world now where people are sort of like, white nationalism, is there something to that? And, and yeah. you know, fascism, is it all that bad? Like, yeah. we live in an era now where you're like, no, I do need to remind you. Yes. These are terrible people. Yes. Whereas I think... Especially a movie that's being, I mean, um, like, marketed to children. I mean, Spielberg would go to make Schindler's List, what, like, four years out later? Right. So it's not like, you know, he's, he's very aware. But yeah. I, I think there is a part of it that's like, Nazis are so easy to be as villains because it's just, you don't have to explain it. It's like, well, they're Nazis. They're terrible people. Yeah. Like, um, you know, I mean, the slapstick is kind of throughout the film. Like when they throw them off the blimp. Yeah. And they're like, no ticket. Yes. It's like, it's fantastic. <laughs> Which also it feels like a Bond movie. Yeah. That would happen in a Bond movie. A Roger Moore Bond movie though, which yeah, is very funny, true. right? Like that's it's true. not as Sean Connery, so. And you have these gross things like the Nazi choosing the wrong goblet at the end and his face melts off. Like it's really gross and yeah. also kind of hilarious. Yeah. Um, I do need to, before we leave on, I, I need to say again, Batman had an incredible Diet Coke commercial. Uh, this was <laughs> the summer of Diet Coke as oh. well. Uh, Diet Coke has a great Indiana Jones Last Crusade uh, commercial where it's all about choosing wisely. If you remember oh, the old night. from the goblet. Oh, yeah. Just for the, the taste of it. And the drinking Diet Coke out of the goblet. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. the best. Yeah. And it's healing, right? They of, get all healed. I mean, until we found out what aspartame did to you. It, it <laughs> Especially if you're in the sun, apparently. Oh. You get a brutal sunburn. Yeah. I just think it tastes gross. Um... This movie uh, opens May 24th, makes $29 million. Um, again, I believe just a little less than Ghostbusters um, 2, but uh, goes on to, to really leg it out. Uh, so it makes $197 million that summer, which would be about $463 million today. Um, and again, it, it has a great long track record, yes. right? Like I think it's a movie that's, really loved there are a lot of people who like to pretend that they never made other ones after this it was in theater in toronto this summer the year of our lord 2022 yeah so that's for real yeah that they're still showing this in theaters and <laughs> in it, i cities. mean with the exception of the like comical tank over the cliff like the effects hold up really well which is yes. kind of nice like you can watch this and not have to put a lot of like asterisks next to things totally. which is kind of neat um and I, I think it also creates that idea of the value add. And I think it also is the idea of like tapping nostalgia mm-hmm. in a fun way is is great. Um, and I definitely think it has legacy that way. Um, shall we go to grand our... Grand finale? Our grand finale of, uh, <laughs> of sequels. Lethal Weapon 2? Lethal Weapon 2. Nice, nice. So... Uh, this one to me feels very much like the reinvention sequel. Right. Uh, cause if you watch the first one, um, cause three and four, very fun. Very, very fun. Three is Rene Russo. You know it. And Love four is one. Chris Rock. Oh. Um, but, uh, this one obviously has a little value add with Joe Pesci, but 
Um, I not, cheered when Joe Pesci came on screen. It's true. I was so excited. But more than that, I think the biggest thing is that this one is very much like a, hey, the first one is dark. Like if you watch the first one, like Mel Gibson's He's Crazy is like he's deranged crazy. Like There's still a little deranged here, but it's more like goofy deranged. It's goofy deranged, whereas the first one, it's like he's on watch. Uh, he's like, we're worried that he's going to do things. Um and I mean the the first one I think opens with a naked hooker dropping off like a hotel balcony. Okay. And it's like bad drugs and Vietnam stuff. Whereas this one is much goofier. Um so um yeah, I mean Sarah, what why don't you give me some of the kind of Yeah, it feels lighter for sure, even when there's intensity. It reminded me of like Twenty One Jump Street. Um, especially the, the LA film or the, the film, show. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just has this like very LA beachy vibe. Like there's a lot of the scenery. Mel lives on the beach. It's. I would love to know how much <laughs> it would cost to buy that trailer park and that beachfront property. Like oh, it's no, gorgeous. He, I think he's squatting there. <laughs> um, there's a very yeah goofy vibe of the police department, which is the whole thing that we'll talk about because yeah. Yeah, that's, that's not that's getting made political. today. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think it's it's very much like a decent buddy cop comedy, and there there is definitely that kind of woke politicking on the side. It reminds me of a Who's the Boss episode where Samantha is <laughs> a very special a boyfriend. I don't know. Samantha's dating this guy. She's got a boyfriend, and he's like protesting the South African apartheid by not letting them buy oranges from South Africa. So <laughs> that just came to mind where I was like, oh yeah, this was a thing in like the late 80s, 90s. With a very special episode, yeah. Exactly. So yeah, I mean, love Joe Pesci. When they meet, there's some great scenes with him. Um, he's memorable as always. But yeah, the first scene where they meet him in the hotel room, the room service attendant is an assassin and they all go out the window into the pool. So this is like some strong starts. There. It, I mean, I, I will say, I think this has one of the best opens to a film. If I'm yeah. not mistaken, it has almost the Looney Tunes beginning. They're like, and then it opens with Mel Gibson yelling and cheering. Yes. And you're in the middle of a car chase. Like yes. I actually, I think it might be one of the all time best opens to a film because you're just instantly in it. Yeah. Um, and it's also instantly funny because like the car right away is getting beat up and oh. Roger, you know, um, Mel's buddy is already complaining about his car getting wrecked. It's his family station wagon that just keeps the beat, wood paneled station wagon that which gets was beat to crap in this film. family car we had in 1989. Yeah, Sorry. it is, it, you know, it's I, like. On the one hand, I think this film is fun to watch in 2022 because it's got it's got some good action, it's sure. got some fun, but more than anything else I've watched so far this summer, this is a movie where you're like, "Holy smokes, this thing is like a time capsule <laughs> yes. of its era." Not only because Mel not Gibson, just the hair, not just the Mel Gibson mullet and every villain's mullet yes. except for the main villain, but just, I mean, there's so much to dive into. Like, let's start with the police in this film. Okay. The cops are heroes. There is no question. Unambiguously Unambiguously. So. We got Hank from Breaking Bad. He's a cop again. Just plays a good cop, that guy. Um, there is one lady cop on the squad. Um, Which is a rad perm. It's true. <laughs> a perm mullet. <laughs> We've got um, a lot of just like buddy-buddy collegiality, friendliness between them. There's a lot jokes. of like goofing off in the office. Of like off. there's bets they have. There's... 
just this like they got a poker game going. All the things you'd expect. Yeah. Um, there is, I mean, later in the film, the police squad are being picked off and killed. Um, and that's when Riggs goes rogue. So he says, I'm not a cop now. It's personal. Um, and then we also have these two who are basically like, it's not possible to kill them. So you have scenes where, um, Roger Murtaugh is on a detonated toilet and Riggs says, you know, guys like you don't die on toilets. So basically they go through all this craziness, all these shenanigans, and they're not ever going to be killed because they're cops and certain cops can get killed, but not, not them. One, I mean, back to the business of film, like the original screenplay for this movie, way darker, um, by a guy named Shane Black, who wrote the first Lethal Weapon and makes this really awesome film called The Nice Guys that came out a few years ago. But his original screenplay is far darker and has uh, Mel Gibson's character die at the end. And the studio was like, yeah, no, we're not doing that. (laughs) Um, But I also think back to even cops, like the cops are unambiguously the good guys. But they're also like, again, I'm not a cop tonight. I'm going to do completely uh, rogue things Mm -hmm. and just uh, like... They just willfully abuse their badge the whole film. Like they are, you know, they skirt the law as far as going after the bad guys. One guy, they, you know, are doing a bet in the the precinct and a guy uses like Cougaran police evidence as like his payoff. And they just kind of like, hey, don't do that. Like it's just a very like, it's just a very tongue in cheek, right? And I mean, some of it is, I think they have both black and white officers in this film. So I think that's avoided but it's kind of remarkable to be like oh yeah it's not like it's like what two three years later they're when is when is the king yeah you're looking it up right now 90 it's during the clinton era 92 92 three years later three years later um and the lapd is already mired deeply in corruption at this point in 89 (laughs) corruption and and brutality charges right like the swat gets invented here so that part is just like oh yeah And even as they go on in the films, I think they come up with, you know, Lethal Weapon 3 has an internal affairs. The bad guy is a cop. Right. Right? Like, um, so I think there's even just this ability by Lethal Weapon 3 to be like, right, we can't make all cops great. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But this one just feels that way. I mean, uh, it's definitely a product of time that way. There's obviously the, like, the fashion of the film. The Quicksilver bomber jacket is absolutely rock solid. Tight jeans and cowboy boots with Mel. Basically what fashion is now. Yeah, yeah, we've, we've just come back to him. Um, mullets for days. We've got an easy uh, villain with the South Africans and oh. the apartheid movement. We've got um, the evil tuna, um, tuna and the dolphins. Um, that's a big political issue with Murtaugh's family, children. Mm-hmm. Um, Murtaugh, <laughs> Murtaugh's best line in the film may be, Free South Africa, you dumb son of a bitch. That <laughs> whole scene, they so explain the whole very scene. Extra. You gotta so explain the scene. It's Murtaugh so good. goes in with gets um, played by Pesci into the bank. Um, they're trying to create a diversion while Riggs breaks into the consulate. So uh, Murtaugh, played by our Danny man, Glover, our man Danny Glover, pretends that he wants to immigrate to South Africa as a black man. Um, so obviously, this is not uh, not real. But it's pretty. Epic. The guy at the consulate has, but 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 your blick like says it in this whole like this accent that is. I, I don't know if he was actually South African or not, but it's, it's hard to tell with his accent. It's hard to tell, but um, it's just like I I think I said this Sarah is one of my favorite things about this movie is 
back to that last crusade a bit, but more so here. It's like, it is, these are maybe some of my favorite villains to hate <laughs> in a film easy. ever. They're horrifically racist. They are drug dealers. And they also uh, are always like, I have diplomatic immunity. And they flagrantly violate it all movies. You just hate them. Do what they want. Like, epic amounts of hatred for them. And epic, epic amounts of money, which means they can always flee by helicopter. Which also feels very, like, 90s, 89 to me. With yeah. thinking back to, like, True Lies and Die Hard and all the others. There's yeah. a few other, like, time capsule things. Like, there's this very sweet family, kind of jokey family scene with Murtaugh's daughter, who is an actress. They're all excited to see her in her new um, commercial. He doesn't realize it's a condom commercial, so he's humiliated. Safe sex, Safe again. Safe sex, exactly. But its way in the there. family, like, is very okay with it, and it's quite low-key. Um, I'm not sure that would have been done a decade earlier. Like in the 1979, it feels like a bit progressive, maybe. I even think the subversive nature of these films ultimately, overall, like here's this black family that is um, stable, upper middle class, functioning. Here's this completely dysfunctional white guy who is the loose cannon, living in a trailer, borderline alcoholic, probably given the amount of Coors Lights that guy's tossing back. Pretty uh, maniacal. Um, we got a lot of saxophone music oh. for the chase and action scenes. So we also know it's ni- we're reminded that it's 1989. If I was better uh, at technical skills and if this ever continues <laughs> and we can get a producer, I would love a saxophone. My the, brother played saxophone in high school. The saxophone to kick in right now. Yeah, it's an Eric Clapton plus this guy in the saxophone. And it's just oh. everything. Like the door opens. So like. <laughs> <laughs> we have. And those drum thing like the the kind of beat for the south african bad yes. guy yeah that's problematic it is a little problematic <laughs> but we're just we're we're all, yeah because it's 1989 we have a horribly one-dimensional female lead mm-hmm. um, rika mm-hmm. who is betraying her boss and country um hooking up with mel um, but what a thing to betray her what country a thing. for right she doesn't seem like she says she's not happy about what her country's doing but doesn't really seem, seem perplexed by it yeah or convinced um, anyway, she doesn't have anyone to talk to because she's the female in the film. And... No, she's, she, she does bond really well with Mel Gibson's dog, Sam. That's right, who may be female. Maybe, but <laughs> she, she's really sure that they stopped the truck the dog, to right. save the dog that's when they're right. attacked by, uh, Which, by a helicopter with machine guns. The dog will figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> Um, we find out near the end, at the end of the movie, that Close. we have Vorstead, who is the henchman, the right-hand man of our main villain. Um, Vorstead has, is the one, he admits, to kill, have killed Riggs' wife four years earlier. So, Which is another classic sequel thing. Yes. Is let's go back. Surprise. Like, the one that I think of that does this the worst is the Bond movie Spectre. Oh, yeah. Where they take yes. um, Christoph Waltz and are like, yes. let's take what was a really decent film the first time and yeah. let's n- unnecessarily make it complicated by being like, psych, this, this guy, yeah. <laughs> this guy did it. So that, that's that got some like classic sequel trope right there. Yeah. Um, and of course, Rika dies because she's the woman. So, you know. No. Um, Comic books will call that the woman in refrigerator oh. uh, theory because there was a villain that got rid of a superhero's girlfriend by putting her in a refrigerator once. Yikes. And so it's, it's a, it's a thing now where people are like, don't refrigerator this character. Oh, bless. Yeah. 
Um, too bad, Rika. You didn't have enough personality to survive. <laughs> um, there are so many good one-liners and so much shtick wrapped up in them. So we've got uh, my favorite line from the boss, the police boss. Who is the <laughs> stereotypical police captain. Like, yeah. he's incredible in this. I don't think he did any other movies. Like, I don't know him from anything else, but he is unbelievable in this role. It's all I needed. love needed him. one. Yeah. Epic performance. So he says, that's why I don't have an ulcer, because I know when to say I don't give enough, yeah. says their boss, when he assigns them to do protection for Getz. Yeah. Leo Getz has so many great ones. They, they, they F you at the drive-thru, and he just goes on and on. Which is Subway drive-thru? I, oh, that's I mean, all I could think about. Why? I was like, did why we ever have that? Subway drive throughs um, Murtaugh finally gets to use the nail gun at the end, which he was oh, using for his renovation. Which is a classic Chekhov's gun. We and, see it in the first act, and oh, it comes it's back. It's got to come back. And he says, nailed them both. <laughs> we also have, um, at the end, with our diplomatic um, immunity character, our villain, um, is it Mel who says... No, it's it's uh, Danny Glover, Danny man. Danny Glover says, yeah. diplomatic immunity has just been revoked. <laughs> has just been revoked. Yeah, the bad guy goes, diplomatic immunity, and he just gets shot. <laughs> right. Which is, I will also say, this movie is one of the worst offenders at the idea that uh, the good guys have the most impeccable aim with a handgun. It's true. But... The first one technically sets up that Mel Gibson's character was like a sharpshooter, but I don't care how good a sharpshooter you are, you shooting a handgun in the middle of the night at a helicopter <laughs> does not take down a helicopter, unless you're Mel Gibson. We have um, Knocking on Heaven's Door, the song playing while Riggs is maybe dying, so that's a bit, you know, heavy-handed. Um, Richard Donner directed this, who mm-hmm. also directed Goonies, mm-hmm. which I, I think tracks. Yeah. That makes sense to me. Yeah. It's got that same kind of wackiness to it. Yeah. I mean, like, uh, I mean, I love Last Crusade, but I feel like that's obvious. I, I love this movie because I think it is just such a little time capsule, but it's just so fun. Um, I want to get into the box office of it and then we can quickly get into Legacy. I mean, this one opened to $20 million, uh, and eventually legged it out to $147 million, which is like just shy of $350 million today, which for an R-rated, and this film very much earns its R, uh, rating is like pretty good. Uh, like Deadpool 2 kind of made right around that money, and people are like, this is the greatest thing ever. Um, I don't know, Sarah, what do you think? When you think of these sequels, what are some legacies, not just for Lethal Weapon 2, but maybe for all three of them that you sort of think... Hey, this is where it's a product of its time. This is where it's definitely like, oh yeah, this is a harbinger of things to come. Well, I think they all feel very summery to me in terms of like, there's that kind of wackiness or goofiness that feels like, yeah, these are adult movies, but kids would enjoy them. And it's kind of like... I I enjoyed the heck out of these films as a kid. Totally. There's something, almost like something for everyone. So I think that kind of... Yeah, nostalgia piece that maybe especially with the Ghostbuster one. Um, but they do just feel like fun. Escapist fun. Fun, escapist. Um, yeah, goofy. Like, obviously, there's some serious action stuff going on and some serious villains. But it feels more like the good guys are going to win. Mm-hmm. You know that. And that kind of, I don't know. That's like reassuring. That's what people want from Blockbuster. 
They want the good guys to win. They don't want that complexity. Um, yeah. yeah. So it feels like we... And how many of them have sequels even after this? Well, Ghostbusters... Takes a while, but more. they figured yeah. out two more. And Lethal Weapon, we got two more as well. Yeah. And so, now Indiana Jones are about to have two more. There you go. So it feels like, yeah, they've they've hit on a formula and they're working it. Yeah. And it does feel, I mean, yeah, to the, the like... The, the prototype of what you want in a summer movie. Completely. Right? Big, fun. Okay, this costs a lot of Exotic money. Exotic location. It's four quadrants in terms of, you know, it gets a lot of different people to come see it. Um, and like you said, I, I'm going to leave not feeling like I had to deal with a lot of complex Not things, tormented. Right? Like, <laughs> apartheid, I thought it was bad going into this movie. I came Still out thinking bad. it was bad. I didn't like Nazis <laughs> before worse. this movie. Uh, I don't like them after. Um, I didn't think ghosts were a good thing for the city of New York before. <laughs> I don't now. So, I, I like it. Uh, and I, I mean, not all sequels are created equal, but... Um, yeah, summer, summer, summer movies were were born to have sequels in them. Not the best sequels ever created, but not the worst sequels ever created. <laughs> I don't know about Ghostbusters too. Um, awesome. Well, guys, this wraps up probably one of our longest episodes. Um, but you know what? This uh, included a little Rick Moranis as we continue to chat about summer of nineteen eighty nine, aka the summer Rick Moranis. So. Um, we've got, uh, more episodes to come, but until then, uh, I'm Kevin and I'm Sarah and we'll chat soon. See you next time. Bye.